History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 342nd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be hitting a location that was in Missouri. It no longer stands today, but it's got such a fascinating story we had to share it. We're going to be talking about Mad Dr. McDowell and his medical college. Nice. Lots of crazy (laughs) stories here, and it's going to have ghost stories sprinkled or interspersed all among the different parts of the history that we're going to be telling. Looking forward to it. But before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Jackie, Marinda, Megan, Jeremy, Edward, Mary, Dean, David, Ellie with an IE, Colleen, and Carmen. Thanks for joining the crew, everybody. And now, this moment, Noddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by John Michaels. When we first heard the story of the talking stove from Zaragoza, Spain, we figured it had to be a work of fiction. But after researching and finding that many people witnessed this talking stove from neighbors to journalists to police officers, we had to look at this seriously. The Palazans family had been living peacefully in their home until September of 1934. At that time, they heard a strange maniacal laugh coming from the chimney and their stove, which were connected to each other. They lived in a duplex apartment, so they naturally assumed it was a neighbor. Later that month, they became more concerned when their maid heard her voice called out from the stove and then a sinister laugh. The family asked their neighbors to come listen, and they heard the voice coming from the chimney and stove too. And since they were in the room, they knew that it wasn't them making the sounds. Soon the town was talking about the haunting. Many believed that it was a duende, which is a supernatural goblin-like creature in Spanish folklore. The voice seemed to know the names of everyone who came to visit even the police officers who were called in to investigate. They had the family move out while they gave the place a thorough going over. The London Times filed daily updates on the case. Architects inspected the building, and when they went to measure the chimney opening, the voice said, The diameter is six inches. And that is what it was. Clearly not big enough for a person to fit. Priests blessed the place, and the Parazons moved back in, only to leave the next day when the voice returned and threatened to kill them. They never returned. The governor got involved, and an official statement was released explaining the origin of the voice. The statement claimed that the maid was unknowingly throwing her voice by unconscious ventriloquism. Was this really just a hoax? The maid was rarely around when the voice was heard, but blame was placed firmly on her. Eventually, the building was torn down, and another apartment building was built in its place and given the name Edificio Duende, or Goblin Building, and that certainly is odd. Chill you feel isn't the 
air conditioning. <laughs> and now, this month in history. This month in history was suggested by Chelsea Flowers. In the month of June, on the 4th in 1923, jockey Frank Hayes suffered a fatal heart attack while riding in a race at Belmont Park in New York City, USA. The Belmont Stakes is a horse race that is held every June at Belmont Park and started in 1867. This is known as the Test of the Champion and is the final and longest leg of the United States Triple Crown. Becoming a jockey at this level is quite the feat and grueling on the body as jockeys have to maintain a very low weight. Frank Hayes was not actually a jockey, but a horse trainer. So when he decided to ride in this race, he had to do some pretty drastic stuff to make weight. And that could be why, along with the excitement of the race, that he had a fatal heart attack at some point in the middle of the race. He was locked in tight to the saddle, so he remained atop his horse, Sweet Kiss, who was a 20-to-1 long shot to win. And despite the fact that he was no longer kicking and guiding Sweet Kiss to victory, the horse crossed the finish line in first place. This made Hayes the first and only jockey to win a race while dead. Stories connected to the McDowell Medical College cover all the bases for a good ghost tale. There was the unusual construction of the building, medical experiments, grave robbing, mental illness, spiritualism, a Civil War prison, and lots of death. The only thing missing in this story is the actual building. The former Ralston Purina Company owns the land today, but tales of supernatural happenings persist. Join us as we share the history and hauntings of the McDowell Medical College. The Nestle Purina Pet Care Company, or the former Ralston Purina Company, owns the property at 9th and Gratiot Street. The company was started by William Danforth in 1894 as Purina Mills, with its headquarters in St. Louis, Missouri. This is now the Nestle Purina campus, and the main building was constructed in 1969. When Purina started, they mainly processed animal feed, but it eventually got into breakfast cereal. You Quite gotta, a combination. I was going to say, you better watch what kind of cereal you're eating. Did you grab the kitty crunch or the whatever crunch? This, these these little marshmallow type things don't really taste like marshmallows. Kind of have a liver taste to them. Ew. <laughs> when it started doing that breakfast cereal, that's when they added Ralston to the name. The corporate parking lot takes up the space at 9th and Gratiot Street. But this had been the Gratiot Prison. And even before that, it was the McDowell Medical College. Dr. Joseph Nash McDowell was born in 1805 in Kentucky. He became interested in medicine early, perhaps inspired by the work of his uncle, Dr. Ephraim McDowell, who made history in the state by removing a tumor from a female patient without using any anesthesia. Can you Pass. imagine? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't put that scalpel anywhere near me unless uh -uh. you have me out. Exactly. 
Troy Taylor describes this in his book, Haunted St. Louis. Ephraim recited a special prayer that had been written for the occasion and then made a nine-inch incision in her abdomen. Again, pass. No. <laughs> no. The tumor was too large to remove with scalpels, so he pressed on it and removed the noxious fluids to bring it down to a more manageable size of 22 pounds. That's a huge tumor. Can you imagine having that removed? You're like, wow, I just lost 22 pounds. No, but you know what I'm thinking is because of the pressure it was already exerting, she probably didn't have as much feeling in her. Oh, that's in true. The, the skin, because when you have that kind of a pressure, you kind of do lose the feeling a little oh, bit. Okay. At least in my experience. Gotcha. Not that I've had a 22 pound <laughs> tumor. <laughs> but you did have some pretty big babies in you. This is true. The woman survived the surgery and lived another 32 years. Joseph had trained under his uncle, and this is when he would start his grave robbing ways. Because those things just go hand in hand. Well, you know, his <laughs> uncle needed bodies. And, right, uh, I guess well, so. There's one way to get them. Things between the men were great until they had a falling out over a relationship Joseph had wanted to kindle with Ephraim's daughter, his cousin. Kissing jo cousins. Yeah. Only she like didn't that. want to be kissing. That was the problem. I don't blame her. Joseph would leave and never talk to Ephraim again. He decided to attend Transylvania University in Kentucky and would flourish there, taking on a mentor named Dr. Daniel Drake, whose sister he would marry. So apparently he had this thing about women who were connected to doctors that he worked with. Clearly. <laughs> but I thought it was really cool that the name of the university he went to was Transylvania University. Absolutely. He then went on to work at hospitals in Kentucky, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. In 1839, he moved to St. Louis, Missouri. And as we wrote there, he started his grave robbing way. So we know that he's going to be continuing in those. And again, Transylvania University. I mean, you couldn't write this stuff. This is why I love history. <laughs> <Too perfect. laughs> Joseph McDowell was a peculiar man with crazy hair who had a temper, carried lifelong grudges, and was described as unstable. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> I mean, you do not want wow. this guy to be your doctor. Or maybe you do. He was a really gifted doctor. Okay. He would rail on street corners against medical institutes and then eventually set up his own. So he didn't like the way they were doing things. Before that, though, he got a job teaching at Kemper College and he helped organize the medical department. That department thrived under McDowell and was known for its anatomical studies. The finances just weren't there and the college faltered. So McDowell took on the reorganizing of it and gave it his name, McDowell Medical College. He decided to build a new building and began construction at the 9th and Gratiot Street location in 1848. This was a unique building with an octagonal tower in the center of two wings with niches in the tower meant to hold the future remains of the McDowell family. Okay. So I guess that's planning. You're, you're supposed to have... Going to be interred right then and there on the premises. <laughs> you're supposed to have funeral planning. I guess he was really ready I for it. I guess so. The architectural style was Greek revival with large Gothic windows. The tower had a deck with six cannons around it to provide protection. This was a medical school, not a fort, but apparently the cannons were needed. Legend claimed that one of those cannons had belonged to John Lafitte. Wow. The school was also stockpiled with muskets. Okay. This guy was getting ready for war, apparently. Sounds like it. But of course, he's a little unstable. We're going to be talking about him doing some grave robbing. So maybe he has a reason to protect the college <laughs> and himself. Dr. McDowell wanted to get medicine away from the old way of doing things, followed by the old men of medicine. Luke Ritter writes in his paper, Anatomy, Grave Robbing, and Spiritualism in Antebellum St. Louis. And all I had to do was see the title of that paper to go, I'm reading this. Absolutely. Dr. McDowell thought the old men lowered the overall reputation of the medical profession and made it harder for him to legitimate his cause. 
He told one story about an old doctor who mixed tobacco spit into his homemade pills. When McDowell asked him about it, the old doctor replied, Oh, I'm just making some pills for a lady across the street. And as there isn't any water handy, I just do it this way. Great. You. <laughs> you. Can you imagine? He's sitting there going, uh, why Put some are you chewing it? First of all, a person's spit is bad enough, but at least it's, you know, just spit. But he's got tobacco in his mouth, too. Ugh. You can just imagine Dr. McDowell sitting there going, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I need water. And hey, Broken. I got to go out to the pump. <laughs> Because, I mean, back then, of course, they wouldn't yeah. have running water necessarily. So I got to go out to the pump. I'll just spit into it. Nasty. Yeah. And then she takes the pill and goes, it kind of had a tobacco aftertaste. I oh, wonder God, why. stop. <laughs> <laughs> the medical school had everything it needed from laboratories to lecture halls to chemical rooms to dissecting rooms. This was the first medical school west of the Mississippi, and many medical graduates would come just to attend lectures by McDowell, who was flamboyant loud and very skilled, especially in surgery. But in order to do these lectures, bodies were needed. As we've discussed on previous episodes, for a while, the bodies of executed criminals would be donated to science. That did not usually provide enough cadavers, but only five states allowed the use of bodies of non-criminals. McDowell made it a rule that no one could graduate without dissecting at least one body. And he had a point because it really is impossible to know anatomy without studying the actual body. Did you ever dissect stuff when you were in school? Of course. We started with an earthworm. I mean, this was the biggest earthworm I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. And I don't even like touching the darn things. You know, I'm out there digging in the garden and they come flipping out and I'm like, ah! So, yeah. And then, it, you know, we moved on to frogs and fetal pigs and all that great stuff. Fun. Well, when I was studying animal science at Cal Poly Pomona, we actually dissected a horse. Wow. So that Thanks. was kind of rough. I but. bet. Many medical schools were graduating students who only had a year of study, and many had never dissected a body. Dr. McDowell did an outreach to the poor community and would offer care for free, and the medical students would have people to practice on. But that still wasn't enough, and thus rumors started floating that the medical students were robbing graves. Dr. McDowell had done it with his uncle, so why wouldn't he teach his students to do the same? And grave robbing back at this time was pretty rampant in some places. In New York alone, 600 to 700 bodies were being snatched annually. A lot of the time when we hear about body snatchers or grave robbers, we think of Europe and stuff. You don't think of it so much here, but clearly it was going on a lot. I mean, 600 to 700 bodies a year That's is a, a heck lot. Of a lot. It makes you wonder how they didn't catch on more quickly of how did all these medical schools have all these bodies to dissect? Right. It's just, I don't know. I think a lot of people just kind of looked the other way. Because, yeah, if you think about that, they had maybe a year of school for medical students and stuff. Not quite like yeah. it is today. The people of St. Louis didn't do anything about the grave robbing from their cemeteries, but they were not happy. They didn't have any real proof anyway. But when a young female German immigrant named Mrs. Malter went missing, people began to think that the medical school had kidnapped her to use for dissection. So now they're thinking they've moved from grave robbing to just murdering people in the street. Yikes. She was later found living with another man in Alton, Illinois. But the distrust of the school continued, and there were several movements against the school by mobs of people, which is why he had the cannons and the muskets. I guess so. Part of the reason people were so quick to blame Dr. McDowell for the girl's disappearance was because he was known for his hatred of immigrants. He was part of the Know Nothing Party, which was a cover name for the Native American Party. 
This was not an indigenous group of people, but rather a group of Protestant men of British descent. So they were calling themselves native, like we Mm -hmm, were here mm -hmm. from America, blah, blah, blah. And the know nothing is when people would ask them about some of their beliefs or who they were connected to, they'd be like, I don't know nothing about that. And so that's why it was called the know nothing party. Basically, they were a bunch of xenophobes, racists, that kind of thing. They couldn't stand Germans or the Irish Catholics. And this was very true of Dr. McDowell. This was just another facet of his erratic temperament. McDowell had also started a museum with rare specimens and animals, and he once set a bear loose on a mob. That oh, came my to word. The school. <laughs> I guess that's one way to take Hello. care of him. <laughs> At first, when I heard about the museum and that he had all these rare specimens and stuff, I just assumed that they were stuffed. But then when I read that he had set a bear loose, I'm like, no, he had live animals in that museum. That's crazy. So it was almost like he had a museum slash zoo inside this medical school. He sounded just maybe a tad off. Yeah, that's why we call him Mad Dr. McDowell. The doctor also made sure that residents knew he had guns as he would occasionally send his students out to fire the muskets in a nearby park. (laughs) Don't know what that did to further their medical careers, but hey, let's go uh, just shoot the guns off over here. Flex their power a little bit. Things came to a head when a German girl died and McDowell and his students hid her body at the college. Her death had been unusual and they wanted to investigate. The locals got word of this and they planned to break into the school and find the body. McDowell received a letter warning him of the coming invasion. He grabbed the girl's body and headed for the attic with it over his shoulder. He was ascending when his lamp blew out. He relit it and started to climb again when it blew out a second time. He eventually got the body up the stairs when he was startled by a figure he saw at the end of the attic. It was his mother. Only his mother was dead. He would tell people that the spirit of his mother had come to warn him and protect him. And it seemed that she might have. Dr. McDowell was shaken seeing the spirit of his mother, who had disappeared once he recognized her. But he set the girl's body down and made his way back down the stairs. He saw that several residents had entered the school and were lighting lamps. They had weapons, and he was trapped. Apparently all those muskets he had inside the school were somewhere else. He glanced into the room from where he had removed the girl's body, and his mother's spirit was standing next to the table, beckoning him. This was apparently a room where they kept all of these cadavers. So there were several of them up on these marble tables. Okay. And so his mom is beckoning him to the table that he had removed the girl from. McDowell gets on top of the table and covered himself with a sheet, hoping that no one would dare uncover a corpse. (laughs) Several minutes passed as he listened to the men scurrying about the building, looking for him and the girl's body. They came into the room and started lifting sheets off of the bodies. One man commented that McDowell's corpse had its boots on so that it must be... A fresh death. Hmm. So I don't know if that's why he just didn't even bother to lift the cover because he was like, oh, boots, it's not the girl. And it's got to be a fresh dead person. McDowell braced himself for discovery, though, because clearly they're looking at him. He then heard his mother whisper into his ear to keep completely still. He never knew if the men just decided not to look at his corpse or if his mother had done something to get them to leave. But he always attributed her with his escape. And it was at this time that he started to seek out the spirit world. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The story is the same for most of us. We have that first supernatural experience and we need to find out more. 
McDowell began to study electromagnetism because he understood that there had to be a relationship between the supernatural and electricity and magnetism. He always considered the afterlife consequences when making decisions, and he became keenly concerned with preserving the body, and he detested normal burial customs. His first foray into something different in this way was to bury his first wife atop the Cahokian burial mounds in Illinois. He would use a telescope to keep an eye on her burial, which he could see from the top of the college tower. He also decided that when any of his family members died, including himself, that they would be encased in copper tubes filled with alcohol. Kelly just gave me a look like, eh. And remember those niches in the tower? Dr. McDowell wanted to put the tubes in those niches. But this was not feasible. So he was on the hunt for a cave to store bodies. The doctor at first chose the Mammoth Caves, but these were all the way in Kentucky, so he found a more suitable location in Hannibal, Missouri. So what had happened is he'd heard this story about some mummified remains being found in the Mammoth Caves, and it's because they have saltpeter in them, and it's supposed to be a preservative in that way. So he thought, oh, caves all probably have this saltpeter in it, so this would be a good place to store bodies if you want to preserve them. So that's where he got the idea from. But clearly Mammoth Caves is pretty far away, so he found something closer. The first person to be stored in a copper tube in that cave would be his 14-year-old daughter, Amanda. Apparently, she had died of pneumonia. The copper tube was suspended from the ceiling of the cave. People started calling him Mad Dr. McDowell, and perhaps he was a little mad, as he believed that he was more able to communicate with his daughter in the afterlife because of this setup. Before long, people were claiming that Amanda haunted the cave. Today, the cave offers tours and is known as the Mark Twain Cave. Many tour guides claim sudden chills that completely enveloped them. And they also say that they see the apparition of a young girl that they believe is Amanda. She is smiling and wearing a white gown that is styled from a different period. She usually disappears into restricted areas of the cave. And a little fun fact, Dr. McDowell visited Mammoth Caves once and scratched a signature into a large rock called Giant's Coffin, which you could still see today. I didn't know that when I visited Mammoth Caves, so I didn't look for it, but that would have been kind of cool to see. Yeah, definitely. Amanda would not remain here for the long term, as the doctor started hearing rumors that teenagers were daring each other to go inside the haunted cave and yank the head of Amanda out of her copper tube. A young Samuel Clemens may have even visited the Hannibal Cave, as he once wrote, There is an interesting cave a mile or two below Hannibal. In my time, the person who then owned it turned it into a mausoleum for his daughter, age 14. The body was put into a copper cylinder filled with alcohol, and this was suspended in one of the dismal avenues of the cave. The top of the cylinder was removable, and it was a common thing for the baser order of tourists to drag the dead face into view and examine it and comment upon it. The doctor decided to move her to the family vault behind the college. There are those who think much of McDowell's beliefs on burial, not really being a sacred thing, came from his years of grave robbing and dissecting bodies. These just became objects to him, and there was no such thing as rest in peace. What I find interesting is he wanted to make sure that he preserved his daughter's body and he wanted all of his family's bodies preserved in this way. And even the Cahokian mounds, I've been to them, they are very, very tall. So to bury somebody on the top of them, be very hard for people to go up there. It's like he's doing all this stuff to protect his family because, well, you don't want somebody to grave rob him like what he's doing. So it's just interesting to see how it's okay to do it to other people, but I don't want it done to me. Hypocritical. Yeah, there's just no way of resting in peace because now I've seen my mom has been around. People are saying my daughter's haunting this cave. So what what does it matter what we do with the burial of people and stuff? McDowell had a son who had become a doctor as well, and his name was Drake. When the Civil War broke out, both men pledged their support for the Confederacy. Drake took two cannons from the school and joined a regiment under General Meriwether Thompson. 
Dr. McDowell took on the commission to serve as a Surgeon General for the Confederate Army of the West. This left the medical college abandoned. The abandoned college was soon seized by Provost Marshal George E. Layton from the Union and used for recruitment, but that would eventually change when General Henry Halleck transformed the hospital into a prison. During that renovation, it was said that soldiers and several former slaves removed three carts full of human and animal bones. Many soldiers were superstitious, and this led them to believe that the college was haunted. And perhaps it was because those bones belonged to disinterred and thus disturbed remains. There were many Confederate prisoners who claimed to feel as if they were not alone, and they heard weird things. Life in the prison was harsh. It was overcrowded and filthy. This was not only full of Confederate prisoners, but also Union deserters and criminals, spies, bushwhackers, and women who helped the Confederacy. Prison guards were described as pure devils, and one inmate said that the jail was hell on earth. The sick and dying were just left on the floor, and food rations were very low. Many people died inside the jail. Despite reports of the horrible conditions and calls to close the prison, it remained open until the end of the Civil War. Dr. McDowell returned to his former medical school and was devastated to find its condition. The stone floors were so dirty that they appeared to be dirt-covered floors. The gallows were located in his gardens. He was committed to fixing things and asked several doctors for help, and eventually the place was cleaned up for reopening. He didn't live long after that, dying from pneumonia in 1868. He was buried in Bell Fountain Cemetery with his first wife and daughter, who were moved to be next to him. The interesting thing about him trying to restore the hospital back to its former condition, which, I God, I can't even imagine how you try to turn a place that was a filth pit into a hospital that's supposed to be sanitary. He left one of the areas, I don't know if it was just one room or whatever, as is, and put above it, hell. And I think he oh, even wow. had, like, I think I'd read that he had, like, an alligator and something else in what? there. <laughs> and so it was just like a reminder to people that this is what hell on earth is like. Okay. The school was then left abandoned until the Terminal Railroad Association demolished it and built their new rail yard in 1882. Workers on the railway claimed to have haunting experiences. They would say they saw the spirits of Confederate soldiers. The same is said of the parking lot at the Ralston Purina headquarters, or I don't know who's bought who and taken over who, but it's changed hands several times. When it comes to those ghosts of the Confederate soldiers, people, can you imagine you're going out to your car at night and you're like, uh, there's a regiment sitting out here, <laughs> right? But the reports of haunting started even before the medical school was torn down. Neighbors would cross themselves when they passed the college because they feared the place and were superstitious. There was the sound of disembodied screams and cries coming from the abandoned building. Ghosts appeared in the windows. When people would go to investigate, they would find no one inside. Troy Taylor shares a story he was told in his book Haunted St. Louis. The descendant of a German man who once lived nearby told me a story that had been passed down in his family. As a boy, his ancestor had played inside the building with his friends on several occasions. An acquaintance claimed that he had come face to face with a ghost inside and would never return. But the other boys didn't let this stop them, especially on a warm summer afternoon. But they soon found that the bright sunshine outside was not enough to penetrate the darkness of the building. The gloomy, thick atmosphere made them realize that they might have made a mistake by going inside. They wandered about, though, poking into rooms and walking up and down the dusty corridors. And then they heard the sound. It seemed to be coming from the octagonal tower. As my witness told me, his great-grandfather had recalled the sound as loud, screeching, banging, and yelling that made the blood curdle. It echoed through the whole structure. The boys had no idea where it was coming from or what it was, but it sent them running out of the building. Many years later, he swore he'd never went into that building again. That 
would do it to me too. Loud screeching, banging. I don't know what kind of, when they set this up as a jail, if it had like the jail doors that you could bang open and stuff like that. But yeah, that'd be enough, especially if you're a young kid. Yeah, it would definitely leave an impression. (laughs) For as out there as Dr. McDowell seemed to be, he was integral in changing the American way of thinking about doctors in his time. People were very skeptical of the medical profession, and there were very few skilled doctors. He changed that with his teaching and his school. He was also a very complicated man, being a professional doctor on one hand, and a man deeply intrigued with spiritualism, and a highly respected man even though he had xenophobic ideals and dug up dead bodies in his free time. Was his former college haunted? Is the parking lot where it used to stand haunted? That That is for you to decide. Well, it's always hard to do these places that no longer stand because there's nowhere for people to go check out or try to do any kind of ghost hunting. But he had such a fascinating story. I was like, I have got to share this. Definitely. I was paging through that Haunted St. Louis by Troy Taylor. I own a ton of his books and I came across that and I went, oh, I've got to tell people about this mad Dr. McDowell. It's got <laughs> he all- certainly was mad. Well, it's got all the key points that you need. I mean, spiritualism, grave robbing, and he's a doctor dissecting bodies. So, Well, we want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We did get an email from Chris and he wrote, hello, ladies. Thank you for the wonderful stories. I am a former corrections officer for the state. I worked at two institutions that were truly haunted. Hardy Correctional was where I saw the apparition with me in a control room. It turned out that he had committed suicide in his cell. Yikes. And I would love to know more about that story. I mean, did he see the guy and think that he had gotten out of his cell? Right. And then when he went to go check on him, found out that he committed suicide? Or is this like something that happened in the past and he's hanging around? (laughs) The second was DeSoto Correctional, where I saw a shadow person exiting one of the housing units. This occurred during the daytime and the prison was closed to inmates or the public. There were several other people who had experiences the same or worse. So we'd love to hear more about that, Chris. Thanks for sharing. Then Jennifer had written in the Spooktacular crew, so my first time posting here, so I thought I'd share this funny story. My husband was on duty last Friday, third shift. His partner for the night calls him at around 3.30 a.m., telling him he needs assistance at Green Park Cemetery because he saw an unknown man in the cemetery at night. However, after a long search by my husband and the other officer, they were unable to locate anybody, and it was very quiet. My husband partner starts to freak out, saying he knows he saw someone, They didn't run away, but was just walking slowly through the gravestones. He then wanted to leave immediately. My husband tells him, you'll be driving along later and spot him in the rear view in the back seat. LOL, this was not funny. When my husband gets home to tell me this, I asked him if he realized that it was Saturday the 13th early morning, so maybe it could have been considered Friday night shift. So almost like a Friday the 13th kind of thing. Mm. Kind of spooky. But yeah, it makes you wonder, did this other officer just happened to see a person walking through the graveyard and they disappeared on their own accord and he just didn't see them leave or was it something else? It's possible. And then Paula also shared in the Spooktacular crew, an old Ringling Brothers poster was uncovered behind the bar in the Union Hotel in Corfu. It says, as the restoration of the Union Hotel continues, work crews discovered a historic artifact a billboard poster for the Ringling Brothers Circus and a performance one summer long ago in Batavia. The advertisement was found paneling in the bar, said owner Tom Dix. Dix said he doesn't know what will become of the billboard, but somehow it will be saved. And it's really cool. I'll show you the picture, Kelly. It goes all the way along the wall. Oh, wow. That's amazing. 
Yeah, so I don't know if this was a poster that was just out on the street and they decided to bring it in and use it as a decoration and put it up on the wall. But I love it when people find stuff like that. Definitely. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to thank Darren Koch for raising your support. We're going to be moving you into a garden tomb. And the same goes for Janae McCabe. She has increased her support as well. She's moving into a garden tomb. And welcome into the cemetery, Sarah Grace and Victoria Howard. Both of you are going to be placed in chest tombs. Awesome. Thanks for helping with the show, everybody. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts.